You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. All right, church. Well, if you will, open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you don't have your own copy of Scripture, it's page 836 in the Pew Bible right in front of you, 836. As you're turning there, this past week I stumbled across a story of an old man named Rama and his young son, Sham, who lived in a peaceful village. And they were known for their hard work and dedication, helping the villagers with various tasks. They owned a donkey to help them with their daily chores. Well, one morning, Rama and Sham set out on a journey to a nearby market to sell some goods. And as they walked alongside the dusty road carrying their load, they encountered a group of villagers who were surprised to see that the father and son were laboring together. And one of the villagers commented, why are you both walking? You have a donkey, so why not not ride that donkey and ease your burden? And so taking their advice, Rama let his son Sham ride the donkey while he walked alongside. And they continued on their way until they met another group of villagers. And upon seeing Sham riding the donkey, one of the villagers said, how disrespectful for the son to ride while the father walks. He should show more consideration and respect for the elderly. And feeling the need to uphold traditions and be respectful, Sham offered the donkey to his father and walked alongside of him. However, their journey was far from over. After coming across another group of villagers, someone from the group criticized, look at that selfish father, comfortably riding the donkey while the poor young son walks on foot. This is not fair. And so feeling the weight of the criticism, Rama and Sham decided to both ride the donkey together. However, as they passed by the next group of villagers, someone yelled, those two are overloading the donkey. It's cruel. It's inhumane. And baffled and frustrated by the constant criticism, Rama and Sham decided to dismount from the donkey and walk alongside of it. But even this decision faced scrutiny. Another passerby quipped, you have a donkey yet you prefer to walk? How absurd! And so at this point, the father and son were disheartened. They were confused. And that's when they learned an important lesson. You cannot please everyone. People's opinions will always differ. And no matter what you do, there's always going to be someone who doesn't like it. And so from that day on, Rama and Sham focused on what they knew was right, and they acted accordingly. They learned that they couldn't control what others thought, but they could control their own actions and decisions. Now, church, I share this little story that I found because the same principle applies when it comes to our Christian lives. As followers of Christ, our main objective isn't to please people. It's to please the Lord. And so therefore, our actions and decisions should be based upon what God thinks, not what we think or other people think. The Apostle Paul understood this when he wrote in Galatians 1.10, Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Think about that. If your goal is to please people, you are not Christ's servant. Well, this morning, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at the best example that Scripture has to offer us when it comes to a life that pleases the Lord, Jesus Christ himself. And through our study, we're going to be reminded of the blessing that comes with following his example. Does that sound like a plan? All right, let's pray. Ask God's blessing on our time and his word. God, I want to thank you for the opportunity again to to speak your word to your people. And I pray that I would get out of the way and that your Holy Spirit would empower me, God, just to speak the truths of your word. 
and that you would convict our hearts and draw us closer to your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So before we jump into the text today, let me provide you some context. We just started Mark last week, so not a ton to catch you up to speed with. But in our introductory study last week, we found John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. And part of John's purpose was to prepare hearts, uh, the hearts of God's people for the Messiah's arrival. And so he fulfilled this purpose by preaching a message of repentance. And as part of his message of repentance, he called his Jewish listeners to change their mind, turn from their sin, and then signify the inward repentance with the outward action of baptism. And, and then John also went out of his way to make sure that people knew, like, hey, listen, I am just the opening act to the main event. I'm the forerunner for what's to come. In other words, he made sure that his preaching pointed people to Jesus, not to himself, but to Jesus. Look at Mark 1, 7 through 8. It says, as he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, today's scene picks up where last week's scene left off. John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing people in the Jordan River. However, as we'll soon see on this particular day, all of John's prep work came to fruition in a remarkable way. So let's begin by reading the whole passage, just four verses, five verses this morning, and then we'll break it down. Mark 1, 9 through 13. Follow along with me. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And as he was in the wilderness, 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. You know, church, in life, there are special moments when a father takes extra pride in his children. We call these proud dad moments. Dads, you understand what I'm talking about? Proud dad moments. Now, proud dad, mo dad moments could center around a child's accomplishments or achievements, their behavior, their resilience, their values, their moral integrity, their ability to overcome challenges in life, their decisions, and so forth. When our children demonstrate growth in these areas, it makes a father proud, right? Well, on the other hand, in life, there's also some not-so-proud dad moments. Times when a father finds himself a bit embarrassed by his children. For example, take it from the father whose young son visited the preacher after church one Sunday morning. He told the pastor, Pastor, when I grow up, I'm going to give you some money. And the pastor replied, well, thank you, young man, but why? To which the boy said, because my daddy says you're one of the poorest preachers we've ever had. You see what I mean? A not-so-proud dad moment, right? Well, church, as God's children, we should aim to give God the Father proud dad moments every single day. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to what? Please him. And so right out of the gate, Jesus gives us a great example of what pleasing God the Father looks like. And so I've broken down today's passage into three realities of a life that pleases the Lord. Let's begin by looking at the first. Number one, a life that pleases the Lord embraces God's will. Embraces God's will. Look again at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. You know, Eleanor Roosevelt said, it's not fair to ask of others what you're not willing to do yourself. And church, we all know leaders 
who fall into this category. In other words, they tell their followers uh, to do things that they would never do themselves, but Jesus was the opposite. He didn't lead solely by edict. He also led by example. You see, baptism wasn't just something that Jesus commanded his followers to do. It's something that he did himself, and he did so for good reason. Now, Mark curiously leaves out the details of Jesus' baptism. See, one of the unique things about the Gospel of Mark is it's like scene after scene after scene after scene, not a ton of details. And so to better understand why this moment was so significant, we got to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. I should have the verses on the screen here for you. Matthew chapter 3. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. You see, John initially objected to Christ's baptism. Why? Well, remember, John's message was a message of repentance. And since Jesus was the Messiah, John found it inconceivable and inappropriate to baptize him. After all, Jesus had nothing to repent of. He was the perfect son of God. And so from John's perspective, Jesus should be the one baptizing him. It should be the opposite. Well, Jesus went on to explain that he must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. The New Living Translation says to carry out all that God requires. You see, the baptism of Jesus symbolized several important things. First, it identified Jesus with sinners whom he came to save. And second, it affirmed his public, excuse me, it affirmed his submission to the Father's will. You see, Jesus was sent to be a suffering servant. His baptism was a public acceptance of this reality. H.A. Ironside said this. He said, The baptism of Jesus was our Lord's pledge to carry on to completion the work he had come from heaven to perform. Now, church, just as Jesus publicly identified himself with sinners and embraced the Father's will through the act of baptism, he asks his followers to do the same, to follow in his example. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, when you're baptized, you are making this public declaration of an inward transformation. You're telling the world that you've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and that you've decided to follow Jesus all the days of your life. You see, for the believer, and this is important, for the believer, baptism is not an optional practice. It's an essential practice of the Christian faith. I've heard it explained this way. We would think it odd if a husband never wanted to go out in public with his wife. He might say, I'll eat dinner with you as long as it's home, or I'll catch a movie with you as long as it's at home, or I'll talk with you as long as it's at home. That kind of behavior would be an insult. Well, Jesus Christ is insulted regularly by his children because they, in private they will identify with him, but in public they don't want anyone to know that they're associated with him. Simply put, even though a person's faith is personal, listen, it's never meant to be private. It's never meant to be private. You know, there's that old thing that you never talk about politics and religion. Okay, look, you don't have to talk about politics because you'll get nowhere in that conversation, right? But we are meant to talk, as believers, we are meant to talk about religion. We are meant to talk about Jesus. That's, that's literally our command. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. If you're a follower of Jesus, you must be baptized. Charles Stanley doesn't beat around the bush. He said, not only are you to trust the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, but you ought to have the courage to make it public confession to the world. 
Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. You cannot be saved and refuse baptism and be in the will of God. Man, Charles Stanley is not messing around, is he? You see, don't misunderstand what he said either. He didn't say you need to be baptized to be saved. He said that you need to be baptized to be in the will of God. And you know what? He's not wrong, church. Friends, if you're unwilling to obey this one command, you're always going to be at a spiritual disadvantage. And on the other hand, when you choose to be baptized, you're choosing to embrace an essential aspect of God's will for your life. And in doing so, you're bringing God pleasure. Look at verses 10 and 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and a spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and with you what? I am well pleased. A story is told of a seven-year-old. True story, I believe, of a seven-year-old boy who was baptized in Lake Tahoe. And his mother, uh, with tears streaming down her face, watched as he came up out of the water. And then she excitingly asked if he felt any different. To which her son replied, yeah, mom, I do. Now I have water up my nose. Church, when Jesus came up out of the water, something different happened. In fact, more than different, it was miraculous. More than miraculous, it was glorious. We see a picture of the Trinity at work. When Jesus rose from the water, his humanity was empowered by the Holy Spirit and his obedience was publicly and audibly acknowledged by God the Father. And friends, when you get right down to it, this should be the aim of every believer. We should aim to live in such a way that after all is said and done, we receive public acknowledgement from the Lord. The aim of every believer should be to hear those treasured words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. How many of you guys want to hear those words at the end of your life? Amen? And so all this to say, a life that pleases the Lord embraces his will. Embraces his will. Not just with baptism, that's just a little sliver, right? That's just a little sliver of God's will. But with all areas of life. Embracing God's will means submitting to his plans and his purposes which are given in his word and living each day for God's glory. And in the end, God promises that those who choose this lifestyle will not be left wanting. And this leads us to the second reality. A life that pleases the Lord endures God's testing. Endures God's testing. Let's look at verses 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. We'll stop there. So church, last weekend, I ran a 5K for the very first time in my life. And when it comes to running a 5K... I've learned that you can't just show up the day of the race, start running, and expect to be successful. If that's you, if you're that guy that can just do that, we cannot be friends. Because most people have to train for a race several weeks beforehand. And, and so that's what I did. And so as part of my training, I put my body to the test through a series of intense workouts. You see, I pushed myself to the limit in my training to prepare myself for the day of the race, and had I not endured intense training in advance, I would have been dead on arrival on race day. I would have collapsed well before the finish line. They would have been calling for the defibrillator, right? Church, the same principle applies to our Christian lives. The Bible teaches that all of us are running in a spiritual race. That's our life. Our life is a spiritual race. 
And if we desire to finish strong, we have to train for it. And there's a, there's a lot of ways that we train for a race. But a major part of our training, this is the one that we really can't control as much, but a major part of our training is going through seasons of trials and testing. And the Lord Jesus is a perfect example of this reality. Some people think, oh man, if I choose to follow Jesus, my life's going to get easier. No, the moment Jesus submitted to the Father's will, his life got a lot, lot harder. Immediately. Mark says immediately following Christ's baptism. So I have, I mean, it's different because Jesus is not deciding to follow Jesus, right? It's not like I have decided to follow Jesus, but he's, he's deciding to embrace God's will. For us, it's I have decided to follow Jesus. And the moment he's decided to do that, to move forward with what God wants him to do, the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Why? So that he can face an intense period of testing before beginning his earthly ministry. Now, it's worth noting that Jesus didn't face intense testing because there was a chance he would fail. He didn't face testing because he would fail. He's the perfect son of God. On the contrary, Jesus faced intense testing to prove that he would not fail. And likewise, similar to his baptism, Jesus also went through this time of testing and temptation to identify with sinners. Look at what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Church, it is important that we recognize that seasons of intense temptations and or trials are not the exception to the Christian life. They're the rule. If Jesus went through them, we as his followers should expect the same. In fact, contrary to popular belief, trials are not a sign of God's displeasure with us. Now, I get it. Sometimes God is disciplining us, but it says God disciplines those that he loves, right? So it's not really a sign of God's displeasure with us. In many cases, they're actually a sign of God's pleasure with us. They're a sign that God desires to equip us for his service. James 1, 2 through 4 says it best, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness... Have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so regarding Christ's period of testing, there's a few observations in Mark that are worth noting. Again, Matthew really pulls the thing out, but we're not going to go to Matthew for this. We're just going to stay in Mark. But there's a few observations in Mark that are worth noting. First, we're told that the Spirit immediately drove him out. The Spirit. Meaning, God was in complete control of the situation. I think this is important to remember, church, because sometimes, and, I, and I'm the first to admit, we go through these seasons of trials and it feels like God isn't even there, right? It feels as if God has forsaken us, forgot about us, or has turned a deaf ear to us. But this couldn't be further from the truth. There is no trial that is common to man that has not first passed through the sovereign hand of God. In other words, you cannot face a trial or temptation without God's permission, now, we know that God doesn't tempt anyone. This is an important distinction. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. However, in his sovereignty, in his control over all things, God does lead us into situations where the enemy is allowed to tempt us. And again, God allows this time of testing so that his good purposes may be accomplished in us. The second observation regarding Christ's period of testing is that it happened in the wilderness 40 days. 40 days. Now, some biblical authorities note that the 40 days in the wilderness is meant to 
uh, symbolize the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness. It's meant to contrast Israel's repeated failures with Christ's perfect success. But nevertheless, on a practical level, it's also a reminder to us that some trials last a while. Some trials last a while. For 40 days, Jesus faced intense, unrelenting temptation. But in the end, he came out victorious. And so, friends, I think some practical application is, is whether you've been in a trial for 40 minutes or 40 hours or 40 days or even 40 years, let me encourage you to keep on fighting and remember that with the power of Jesus, victory is always possible. Either victory in the trial or through the trial or over the trial or underneath the trial, but one way or another, victory is possible for those in Jesus. Amen? Romans 8.31 says, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory, not just plain old victory, plain old victory, we, we, who, who would just take plain old victory in their lives? I would take plain old victory, right? But no, God's overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. The third observation regarding Christ's period of testing is that it happened in the wilderness with the wild animals. It's like, why? why I mean, for a guy that's not too keen on details, why give this little kind of random detail with the wild animals, because uh, every word in Scripture matters, right? Um, well, I found that the Jews often associated the wilderness and wild animals with satanic hostility. They kind of, the two kind of went hand in hand. And so here, I think we're reminded here that when the enemy attacks, it, us it usually happens in places where we're most vulnerable. Isolation, desolation, when we're in those ruts, right? And that's when the enemy likes to really come in and attack. But again, in Christ, we have the answer for victory. James 4, 7 should be on the screen. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Friends, Jesus Christ was the best example of this reality. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, we find a much more detailed account of Christ's temptation in the wilderness. And we're not, Again, we're not going to go there. You can read it for yourselves. But despite being attacked by Satan from every single angle possible, Jesus continued to submit himself to the Lord, submit himself to the Lord, and, and trust in his word, and, and use his word as, 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 a, as a weapon, and, and he just submission, submission, submission. And then after 40 days of getting nowhere with his attacks, we're told that the devil left him. Friends, the same is true with us. This verse is for believers. This was written to the church. If we continue to trust in the Lord despite the enemy's attacks, if we continue to embrace God's will and submit to his ways despite the trials that we face, if we continue to sing God's praises and walk in obedience anyway, even if we don't feel like it, eventually Satan's going to give up and he's going to find a new target because we're submitting ourselves to God. And so, church, all this to say, enduring God's testing is a normal part of Christian living. And even though we may not always understand why we're being tested, we could find great solace in knowing that Jesus understands exactly what we're going through. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he will use our times of testing not to hurt us, but to help us. He will use them to strengthen our faith and keep us in the race and get us to the finish line without needing a defibrillator, right? I like what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. How many of you want to end your life being able to say that? And this leads us to the third reality. 
A life that pleases the Lord enjoys God's aid, enjoys his aid. Look at the second half of, of verse 13. And the angels were ministering to him. You know, one of my favorite poems is entitled Footprints in the Sand. And it simply reads this. One night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. And scenes from my life flashed across the sky. And in each one of those scenes I noticed footprints in the sand. And sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times there was only one. But during the low periods of my life, I could see only one set of footprints. And so I said, you promised me, Lord. You promised me that you would walk with me always. Why, when I have needed you the most, have you not been there for me? And the Lord replied, the times when you've only seen one set of footprints, my child, is when I carried you. Church, one of the most incredible blessings of being a child of God is knowing that he promises to be with us and to help us in our times of need. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present what? Help in trouble. Psalm 54.4, behold, God is my, the Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 121, 1 and 2, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. When Jesus faced intense testing in the wilderness, God the Father didn't leave him alone. He sent angels to minister to him. And in the same way, when we find ourselves going through similar tests and trials in our, in our own lives, we don't have to go it alone. That's the beauty of having Jesus. We don't have to go it alone. We have the assurance of heavenly help. Church, it may sound cliche, but it's nevertheless true. If God led you to it, he will be faithful to lead you through it. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so, church, as I close, let me encourage you to commit to living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Let me encourage you to embrace his will, to endure his testing, and through it all to enjoy his aid, being fully aware of his presence. You know, someone once said, Christians aren't promised an easy life, but we are promised eternal life. And if for no other reason, church, if for no other reason, a man, do we have reasons to, to bring the Father pleasure with our lives, but if for no other reason, if there's no other motivation for living a life that's pleasing to the Lord, that's enough. Eternal life is more than enough to live our lives to please God the Father, yes? Eternal life is more than enough reason to give God the Father proud dad moments every single day. How about it, amen? And of course, the very step, first step in living a life that's pleasing to the Lord is making sure you're a child of God. In, in other words, you need to be a believer. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. See, friends, the Bible teaches that, that God, he created us to be with him, to have this relationship with him. But our sin separates us from him, and there's nothing that we can do to, to bridge that separation. Apart from a Savior, we are dead in our sins. And when we die, we're, we're going to go to a place of eternal separation from God. That's the bad news. But the good news is that 2,000 years ago, God, in his great love for you, became a man in Jesus. 
And he died on a cross taking the punishment for your sins and my sins upon himself. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and in doing so, he provided a way for you and I to receive forgiveness of your sins, be saved, and receive the gift of eternal life and become a child of God. And so if you're here this morning and you're, you're convinced, I want to start living a life that pleases the Lord, but you're not sure you're even saved in the first place, that's the first step. And so if you need to, to get right with Jesus, if you need to be assured of your eternal life, if you want to receive forgiveness for your sins and be assured of your salvation and receive that gift of heaven, then all you must do is admit that you're a sinner, repent of your sin, asking God to forgive you, and believe in the person and work of Jesus. Trust in him and him alone to save your soul. And at the moment of belief, you will be saved. The gospel, that's the gospel, friends. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever does a bunch of good works and behaves really well should not perish but have eternal life. Is that what it says? No. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And then you'll be able to start living your life in submission to the Lord learning how to follow him with your life and learning how to get through those trials in your life with God right by your side, it begins with belief. And if you're ready to take that step this morning, you can do so honestly right in the quietness of your seat by praying to God and just asking him to forgive you and to save your soul and trust in Jesus. And when you do, you will be saved. And all I ask is let us know about it. Let us know that you made that decision by marking it on your Connect card, dropping it in the gray basket on your way out. I'd also encourage you to come forward, grab an information packet uh, that just has information to kind of help jumpstart you and help you grow in your faith. But let me encourage you, don't leave here without letting somebody know you've trusted in Jesus. And so at this time, I'm just going to close us in prayer. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward. We're going to close with a responsive song, and then we'll be dismissed. So let's bow our heads and pray. Lord God, I... It's obvious there's not, there's not one true follower of you that would say, I don't want to live a life that's pleasing to God. Lord, we all desire to, to want to live a life that gives you pleasure, that we give you these proud dad moments every single day. Uh, God, we all want to live in such a way that we can stand before you someday and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. But Lord, we admit that in our flesh we fail. And I suppose, Lord, that is why we have the cross always to lean on. You're always there to forgive us and to help us get back on the straight and narrow. But God, I pray for myself and I pray for every single person here today, this whole church body, Lord, that we would leave here sensitive to the, to the fact and the desire that we want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Help us to follow Jesus' example of what that looks like. God, help us to embrace your will and help us to endure the tests you put us through, still giving you glory. Help us to enjoy knowing that you're always there to guide us and help us and be our aid through those times of trial. And through it all, Lord, let us give you glory with our lives. And ask this humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.